the BioWorld Insider Podcast. This is the BioWorld Insider Podcast. I'm Lynn Yaffe, BioWorld's publisher. In the global fight against COVID-19, you might have heard about a small startup that's poised to unleash a multi-billion dollar COVID-19 blockbuster drug, along with New Jersey-based Merck and Company. Merck and its partner Ridgeback Biotherapeutics, a company BioWorld first introduced in 2019, are pursuing emergency use authorization for the drug called Molnupiravir. A phase three trial showed the oral antiviral cut the risk of hospitalization or death from COVID by half. Now, with global governments already pledging to buy big lots of the pill, pending regulatory approvals, of course, it's on the precipice of becoming the first drug of its kind to treat COVID. A pill. That's a real game changer. With the meeting of the FDA's advisory committee scheduled to consider the evidence for molnupiravir on November 30th, we're continuing to follow the story. But there's a surprising story behind the story. It's a little complicated and quite controversial. It touches on the U.S. government's role in funding the life-saving research that led to the development of this new drug. And it's about the growing concern that Merck is planning to charge more than $700 per treatment when taxpayers have already bankrolled a reported $29 million to support the research. A recent analysis by researchers at Harvard and King's College pegged the real cost to make the treatment at around $18. Today, we're glad to welcome Joseph Allen. He's the executive director of the Baidol Coalition and will help us untangle that scenario and tell us how technology transfer aided in the development of Molnupiravir. BioWorld Managing Editor Michael Fitzhugh will guide the discussion so that we can better understand the brewing controversies with an emphasis on the drug's ultimate price. Over to you, Michael. Thanks, Lynn. For those of you who don't know much about the Baidol Act, and I have to admit, that was me for a long time. It basically helps the private sector to commercialize and profit from federally funded research. I think Joe is going to tell us that it also plays a big role in making the United States the world's leading innovator. But we'll get there in a minute. First, Joe, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So there's a lot to talk about with a potential new COVID-19 treatment in Molnupiravir on deck and what the Bayh-Dole Act has to do with it. But to set the table a little bit first, could you tell us a little bit more about what the Bayh-Dole Act is and how it fits into your story? Sure, I'm happy to. Basically, um, after World War II, the U.S. government had a policy of that anything the government funded, any invention, would be basically made publicly available through non-exclusive licensing which was kind of like a Marshall Plan of, of technology development after World War II. And for, you know, until the 50s and 60s, until the 60s, really, uh, we didn't have much international competition. Uh, Europe and Asia were pretty devastated by the war. But what, what, we, what became apparent was that there was no incentives for anyone to actually change, take government-funded research and make it into a usable product. And the reason is, is very simple, because the U.S. government is funding fundamental research uh, and that's really a long way from a product. It's more like an idea than a product. And so what we found was when I was on the Senate Judiciary Committee for former Senator Bai, was that uh, the government was funding about half of the research in the country, but virtually nothing was being commercialized. And we also had Japan and Germany at that time uh, taking markets away from the U.S. We had double-digit inflation, double-digit unemployment. 
So we thought, well, this doesn't make any sense. Um, and even worse than that, we found that not a single new drug had been developed from National Institutes of Health funding when the invention was taken away from universities. So what Bayh-Dole does is it changes that and it says the government funds the research and a university or a small company that makes an invention with federal funding can own it. Uh, we, they have to give a preference and licensing to a small company that will make the invention in the United States. But we basically said, you know, uh, and I would quibble a little bit with your introduction. Uh, the Bayh-Dole Act is not to help companies profit. The Bayh-Dole Act is to help the consumers uh, both here and around the world actually get a tangible benefit out of government research. I guess the question is, do you want a research paper or do you want a new drug or a Honeycrisp Apple or, or Google? All those came out of Bayh-Dole. So uh, fast forward 40 years later, um, we now have about 300 new drugs and vaccines on the market because of Bayh-Dole. Uh, the U.S. is the is a leader in biotechnology and life sciences. We were not that before Bayh-Dole. And uh, Bayh-Dole is one of the drivers of the U.S. economy. Uh, it contributed an estimated $1.7 trillion with a T dollars between 1997 and 2017 and supports about 6 million new jobs. Uh, the U.S. creates three new companies every day of the year on average because of academic inventions. And we also uh, commercialize about two and a half new products every day. So uh, Bayh-Dole has been a significant driver of the U.S. economy and has had a huge benefit on public health and welfare, uh, not just in the U.S., but around the world. So I've got to admit that in the uh, introduction there, I definitely, I might have been baiting you a little bit. <laughs> so I, I can understand your quibble. Hey, and... <laughs> no, no, listen, but baiting, I'm just, I'm not offended. I just, just uh, want to make that point. So, I mean, it sounds like, um, you know, in terms of the the benefits the act was intended to deliver the, those incentives those translations of you know academic and um, other government funded research into into products those those intended benefits have have really been delivered on in a number of industries not least of which being being life sciences maybe it'd be a good time to move on to molnupiravir then. So we're talking about an oral antiviral drug invented at Emory University with support from U.S. government funding and later licensed from Emory to Ridgeback Bio for further development. Ridgeback and Merck formed a partnership not long after, and they've been advancing the drug together ever since, most recently applying, like Glenn said, for uh, FDA emergency use authorization for the treatment of mild to moderate COVID-19. So what role is Bayh-Dole playing in that story? Well, basically, um, as you mentioned, uh, Emory University made the invention with government funding. So it falls under Bayh-Dole. And under Bayh-Dole, you know, before Bayh-Dole, it would have been taken to Washington and it probably would have just sat on the shelf because there was no incentive to develop it. But under Bayh-Dole, Emory University owned the invention. They thought it was significant. Um, and that's one of, the, one of the geniuses of Bayh-Dole is we let the people creating the technology really manage it because a lot of times it's really hard for somebody outside the system to really understand that. So basically Emory thought they really had something significant. They were actually working on it before COVID, but when COVID came out, they said, hey, this really could be a, a, a big breakthrough because remember, it, this is hard to imagine now, but 18 months ago, there were no therapies, you know, we didn't have anything to fight to fight the COVID. And a lot of people seem to have forgotten that already. So Emory basically started looking for a partner. 
And under Bayh-Dole, we said that you have to give a preference for a small company. So Ridgeback Biotherapeutics came in. They'd actually done some work on an Ebola vaccine. And under Bayh-Dole, you don't just have to be a small company. You have to have a feasible commercialization plan. So you have to come in and really show that you have an idea how to, t- how to commercialize this. And so Emory was very impressed with Ridgeback, and they gave them a license. So Ridgeback was, was really looking to, to, to again, remember uh, 18 months ago, we had a crisis because the hospitals were getting overrun. We had people getting COVID, people dying from COVID here and around the world, and there was really nothing they could do. So Ridgeback uh, went to, there's a thing called the Biomedical Research and Development Agency at NIH. And that was established because a lot of things are, are high risk and high priorities, and they want to make sure they're accelerating the development. So this is outside of Bayh-Dole. So Richback went to BARDA and said, hey, listen, we've got something significant here. We'd like to get your help on developing it, and we really want to move this as quick as possible. BARDA turned them down because the person running it thought, well, you know, these people, we've seen this, this drug before. It might have some side effects, and uh, and I don't like being pressured. You know, these guys are, are being too high pressure. And uh, I actually did a webinar last year on Bayh-Dole and the and the COVID crisis. And I asked some of the people at the National Institutes of Health. I said, I'd like to get a, a small business person that could really talk about what's being done to fight COVID. And they recommended Wendy Holman, who's the CEO of of Ridgeback. So Wendy came on. And she was telling, you know, she obviously had a huge sense of urgency, but she also said how frustrated she was trying to work with the government. She said, you know, we're, we're, we're working 24-7 during the pandemic, trying to do something with this, with this potential breakthrough, and we just can't get anybody to, to respond. So what they did was they gave up on government funding and found Merck. And Ridgeback on their own had actually funded some of the initial trials, which actually showed there was a good efficacy. So Merck picked it up and started moving. And then BARDA came back later and partnered with them and, and actually have moved it to market. So it, it's not just a buy dole success story. It's also a, an example of why entrepreneurs drive our system in the U.S. opposed to the government bureaucracy, although the government helped. But without Wendy Holman and Richback, uh, this would still be sitting somewhere. And uh, you know, here we are 18 months later, and it looks like we might have something that can reduce hospitalizations by 50%. I mean, think about what the value of that is, not just to the health, but to international economies. So, uh, you know, to me, it's a miracle. Uh, I'll say that quite bluntly. I mean, I I love Wendy. I love what she did. But it's an example of how the system works. And, uh, you know, to think we'd be be here thinking that they they pulled something off untoward when actually it looks like they might have really done something to help save the world. I, I just can't join that. I, I feel very grateful that our, our people develop the best vaccines in the world in record time under Bayh-Dole partnerships. And now we may have a, a pill that does it, but the development and the commercialization is the Bayh-Dole thing. Pricing falls outside of Bayh-Dole, so they're really two separate issues. But, um, you know, again, if, if 18 months ago somebody said you could take a pill, it would reduce hospitalizations 50%. What would you have said that was worth? Right. I mean, obviously, there's a huge sort of success story to be seen there, not just for entrepreneurship, but tech transfer, and, you know, obviously, for patients, um, if this is if this gets emergency use authorization, and perhaps a, a full approval later on. But, you know, in terms of, I think you you alluded to the controversy, 
around this. And a lot of that revolves around pricing, as you noted, that that's maybe outside Baidol. But as people have recognized this progress, there's also been objections to the idea that government has funded this to a large degree in early development, that there are tax dollars that are being spent to um, not only contribute to development, but also to support the manufacturing. What are people owed in circumstances like that, where tax dollars have paid for a government invention? And, you know, at the end of the day, is there, are people owed a discount? Is the innovation itself enough? Well, th that's, a, that's a great question, because it, I mean, I'm just talking about U.S. policies now. They may have different things in other countries. But now this is outside of Baidol. But what happened was after we passed Baidol, particularly in medicine, um, it became apparent that some of these things are so high risk that companies simply won't do it on their own. In fact, if you go to our National Institutes of Health, they have a really hard time licensing any vaccine to find anybody who's interested. When we had the Zika vaccine, um, you couldn't, they couldn't find a single licensee. And when they did, they were publicly attacked for the same, the same thing these people are being attacked for right now. So basically, I think what we've made the decision in the U.S. is you know, we want to we want to err on the side of getting these things out to the market as quick as possible. I mean, these are they're made available in the U.S. first. Uh, our government now, the Trump administration and the Biden administration is is has said, hey, we're going to go ahead and actually order this, assuming it's going to be it's going to be approved by the Food and Drug Administration. So the government has a lot of say over the price. In fact, the Biden administration is just contracted with Merck for, I think, 200 doses of, of the new pill. So, again, you know, we had we had the same debate on the COVID vaccine, and the, the, we we heard these people are going to gouge the public. Oh, this is horrible! Look at what these terrible people are doing. I don't know. Uh, I, I don't know if you've gotten the vaccine yet, but I didn't pay anything for it. And you know, again, the reason was you had this government-private partnerships. We'll see what happens with the, with Merck, but Merck has already negotiated with some of the generic drug companies to make it available. They're they're manufacturing around the world. Uh, certainly, it needs to be affordable. In fact, you know, companies want to sell products, so they don't. They want to price it so high, nobody can do it. But, you know, it's one thing to make the criticism, but all of our government programs, like BARDA, that support this, don't have a price provision in there. And there's a simple reason for that. The critics, the critics now who are, who are attacking Merck and attacking uh, Richback, attack the bikes vaccine makers, and and, and about 20 years ago. They browbeat the National Institutes of Health into putting a reasonable pricing provision into their licenses and their cooperative agreements with industry for the same reasons we're hearing right now. Now, they couldn't define what a reasonable price was because nobody can do that in advance because just like this pill, you know, we're talking what the government put into it, but what did Richback and what did Merck put into it? They had some real costs there. And again, if you're selling a drug or a vaccine, you not only have to re re recover the cost you put into this product, but 95% of your projects for new drugs fail. So somebody has to pay for that and the consumer and the government doesn't pay for that. So there's a lot of things that go in there. But what happened was NIH put this reasonable pricing provision in their agreements in the 1990s. What was the result? Was it a golden age of cheap drugs? No, what happened was companies walked away. You've made the risk so high, we won't partner with you now. And that happened for five years. So finally, Harold Varmus, the director of NIH, after five years, said this is, had, had achieved no public purpose. All it's done is killed partnerships. So he removed that pricing provision and agreements went back in place, which is exactly why 
18 months ago, companies would partner with, with the government because they understood what the rules were. And again, uh, yeah, I don't know what, I don't, I have no say, I have no expertise in what's going to happen with the pill, but we had the same debate for the vaccines and they are made available to the public for free. So will this be free? I don't know, but we've made a choice now in, in the government that we want to make sure these things are available and then we'll work with the market to try to make them affordable. Um, but everyone who's looked at this issue and it's being debated right now in our Congress, the, the, the Democrats are trying to have the drug companies negotiate with Medicare and they're, they're split even among the Democrats. How, you know, how do you do price controls? Because the, it, the line is so thin between getting things developed and, and making them basically have companies walk away that every time you try to impose artificial prices, um, things just wind up not being developed, which to me is the worst of all worlds. I mean, what would happen if this pill was sitting on the shelf? And that could easily have happened, but for Richback, this would be sitting on the shelf at Emory and, and it may ne never have been developed. I think I, may, I made one mistake. Uh, the US government has actually funded 1.7 million courses of the pill. So again, th th it's, it's, it's good that we're doing that because it, it assures the company they're gonna make some sales. We did the same thing with the vaccine development, but again, the government's got a big role in setting what the price is going to be, because obviously they're negotiating with the company for what price they're buying it for. Um, so again, we want we all we all want to make sure I don't get any discount because I worked on buy dole when I buy my prescriptions. But the most important thing is to make sure we get these things developed as quickly as possible. And as flawed as it may be, the U.S. system runs rings around the rest of the world. So, you know, we we can we can. Uh, say it should be better, we say we could change it, but everyone that's looked at this that I've seen has not come up with a better solution than, than frankly, what we're doing right now. So you talked a little bit about the um, effort at the NIH to specify you know, a reasonable, reasonable price or I think reasonable terms for you know, medicines that were developed from their, from intellectual property that they supported, and you can correct me if I misphrase that, but um, you, I understand that some people in Washington are talking about part of Bayh-Dole um, that gives the government rights to march in on patents. Can you tell us a little bit about what march in is and the context or the, you know, the, the way in which it's being talked about in Washington right now? Sure, I'm happy to. Um Basically, even before Bayh-Dole, uh, as I mentioned, the government would take invention rights away from the developer or the, or the inventor. But it, it soon became apparent that policy was not working very well. So President Kennedy and President Nixon said, we'll have waivers where the inventor inventing organization can petition the government to, to own the invention they made with federal funding. And if that was done in the exceptional cases, the government always had a march-in provision which wanted to make sure that in fact, you're making good faith efforts to commercialize the technology. So March ends preceded by Dole, and they've always been used uh, because again, the purpose of by Dole was to make sure we're getting these things to the market as quickly as possible. So we adopted March in rights and they say, basically if a university has licensed an invention made with federal support and good faith efforts are not being made to commercialize it, the government can march in and force them to license another party. The government can also march in if it looks like the developer is not able to meet the needs of a national emergency. So that's the way the law worked for 20 years. 20 years after Bayh-Dole, the same people who tried to kill it wrote a law review article 
and said that they'd found a hidden meaning in Baidol. Well, I was on the staff of Senator Bai, and basically I laughed when I read that because what they did is they quoted the critics of Baidol and anti-Baidol hearings. And so I didn't take that seriously, but then they started publishing in the Washington Post that Baidol allowed the government to come in and set prices. So Senator Bai pushed back on that. We said, that's not how the law works. But nevertheless, they filed a series of petitions under, under Baidol. Anyone can, can write a petition to the government to march in under the, under the statutory criteria. So there have been a series of petitions filed under Democratic and Republican administrations asking the government to march in to set prices for things that were, were successfully commercialized. Every one of them has been dismissed. In fact, the most were dismissed under the Obama-Biden administration because they've said that's not how the law works. But nevertheless, that still persists. People are they're still pushing the same theory. And as Senator Bayh said, listen, anyone's free to second guess us and say that we should have had price controls in there. But if you want to do that, the way of doing it is you have to amend the law. And if you amend the law, you better say in statute what you mean by a reasonable price because that's completely arbitrary. But no one has actually done that because it, they, I think people realize it would actually kill the bill. So it, it's like a, it's a political thing that keeps coming up. It's never been successful. In fact, the Washington Post fact checker just checked it a couple of weeks ago and dismissed it as a theory that's had no support and has a dismal track record. Um, but but politically, I think it resonates. It seems like something where, you know, it, it always gets people uh, fired up if they think that they're being cheated. But Bayh-Dole is about commercialization. Remember, before Bayh-Dole, not a single drug had been commercialized, which is the ultimate waste. Under Bayh-Dole now, we've not only got 300 drugs and vaccines on the market from, from federally funded research, but the U.S. is the leader in life sciences as, as well as other fields of technology. So I would argue that's a huge benefit, which should not be taken lightly. And the last thing we want to do is kill our innovation system by adding on arbitrary things like price control. And remember, under Bayh-Dole, this would happen as you sign the license, you know, before you actually commercialize anything. Uh, our system is driven by small companies like Ridgeback. 50% of the new drugs in the United States come from small companies. They have to get venture funding. No venture capitalist would ever fund a company with that hanging over them, because what it means is if you're stupid enough to commercialize a technology, anybody could file a petition saying they don't like your price and the government would then license your rivals. So that's why, that's why when NIH tried this, the system collapsed. It didn't reduce prices. It simply collapsed the system. So it sounds like you are seeing Bidol as quite robust in its current form and not particularly vulnerable to reinterpretation going into the future of the Biden administration or beyond. Oh, it's vulnerable. I mean, it's vulnerable. In fact, right now, Dr. Francis Collins, who has actually, who's actually been a big supporter of Bidol, who's turned down the petitions, well, he's, he's resigning from NIH. So they're already starting a, you know, the, the critics who go back 40 years, if this, is a, this fight goes on when Bidol was started, the critics are urging the Biden administration to appoint somebody who will violate Bidol and try to misuse it for margin rights. So it's certainly vulnerable. But I think one encouraging thing is uh, Senator Joe Biden, when he was a senator, actually supported Bidol. He was on the Judiciary Committee with Bi and Dole and voted for the bill. Uh, so hopefully saner, uh, saner uh, minds will prevail. But, uh, you know, again, the danger is 
If you misuse Baidol, you're not going to lower prices. What you're going to do is you're going to kill innovation. And things like the vaccines we've just had and the new pill, uh, before Baidol, those would have just sat there on the shelf. And it's very unlikely they ever would have been developed. And just think about what the cost, and not just the, the economic cost, what would the health cost be? And we remember 18 months ago, maybe I'm the only person who remembers this, our hospitals were being overrun. In fact, they're still being overrun every time COVID spikes. What would be the benefit to the public and to health workers if 50% of the people going to hospitals stayed home and took a pill? I mean, that to me is a miracle. And to think that we've done that in less than two years is incredible. There's never been a vaccine developed in months as opposed to years until last year. Uh, so, you know, to me, uh, we ought to be having a ticker tape parade for the people that have pulled this off, people like Wendy Holman, instead of kicking them in the teeth. So from your perspective at the Baidol Coalition, do you see any ways in which Baidol might evolve for the better or change given more modern circumstances? Or, um, you know, are there any aspects in which you think it might be amended or added to in the future? I would leave it alone. It's working. And in fact, the best evidence it's working is the Chinese have adopted it to compete against us. So basically, uh, you know, when people say, well, how would you improve it? Um, I really can't think of anything that the law is working as it was intended. Uh, the benefits have been tremendous. And again, there's there's two aspects of the problem. Baidol's focused on if the government funds research, let's make sure it turns into a product. And also let's make sure that product is made in the United States whenever possible. That's what Baidol does. The second part of it is, you know, back to healthcare. Why are medicines so expensive? Why are drugs so expensive? That's not a Baidol issue. That's a much larger issue. And what Congress needs to do is address that issue directly. Don't try to put that on Baidol. Baidol can't carry that weight. It would collapse the system. It would do no good. We saw that at NIH. So what these politicians need to do, as opposed to taking pot shots at Baidol and making up crackpot theories, address the real issue. And, and that's hard to do because it's a really complicated issue. But, um, you know, again, we need to separate those two and say, you know, what Baidol does, it does extremely well. We are commercializing these technologies. People like Emory um, have got their heart and soul into this. I mean, that, that passion, the, the passion that's needed to drive commercialization is only done when it's decentralized and people have the incentives and the authority and we get the bureaucracy out of the way. Putting more bureaucracy on Baidol and having more government oversight and more committees in Washington would frankly kill the golden goose. And everyone in the world, quite almost literally, is benefiting because of Baidol right now. So I would say Baidol is working, but the, the, why the healthcare is so expensive is a different issue, but it needs to be addressed directly. You can't pile that onto Baidol. Joe, I think that's a good place to leave it. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's been really interesting to talk to you about this. I've certainly learned a lot about Baidol, and I hope that our listeners have too. Well, th thank you very much, Abe. I actually enjoyed talking with you. Thank you both, Joe and Michael. It's, it's really a fascinating story. And Joe, you certainly gave us some perspective on that potential $700 price tag when you look at the millions of people who might not have to go to the hospital as a result. As always, BioWorld will continue to keep you informed of all the most important scientific, clinical, and business updates in the field. So that's our show for today. If you need to track the development of drugs, turn to BioWorld.com, follow us on Twitter, 
or email us at newsdesk at bioworld.com. Also, if you're enjoying the podcast, don't forget to subscribe. Thanks for joining us. BioWorld, published by Clarivate, is a subscription-based news service, but all of our COVID-19 content, more than 5,000 articles and data entries since the start of the pandemic, are freely accessible.